Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Networks podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources. Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Shelley Bell Smith. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Pam Kastner, who is a passionate advocate for the science of reading. She is the president of the Reading League Pennsylvania. She is also an educational consultant at the Pennsylvania Training and Technical Assistance Network, Patton, Harrisburg, where she serves as the state lead consultant for literacy. Dr. Kastner currently co-leads Pennsylvania's Dyslexia Screening and Early Literacy Intervention Pilot Program Extension and Expansion. Dr. Kastner serves on the statewide multi-tiered system of supports, MTSS team, working extensively in the area of literacy, effective instruction, formative assessment, and professional learning communities. Dr. Kastner has served in a number of leadership capacities at the district level and served as a Pennsylvania Distinguished Educator for the Pennsylvania Department of Education. She is a Certified Language Essentials for Teachers of Reading and Spelling Letters, trainer, and a certified reading specialist. Dr. Kastner's mission is to build collaborative partnerships that develop educators' knowledge and skills, leading to increases in student achievement. Welcome, Pam. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Gosh, I I think I had to shorten my bio. (laughs) It's a very impressive bio, so I think that Uh, We need to always give credit where credit is due. I wanted to see if you could just start by telling us how you became involved with literacy since you've gone on to achieve such great things already. Oh, gosh, it's always done in a team, that's for sure. But I think I became involved in literacy when I was eight. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, Ever since I was a little girl, all I ever wanted to do was be a teacher. So I was very lucky, as many of us are, to have teachers that made a lasting impact on their life and I feel very blessed and grateful to never really worked a day in my life. I've always wanted to be a teacher. Um, it's been my mission and vision since I was a little girl. So I think since the time I was little, and I was always the, the kid that when my mom couldn't find me, I was somewhere uh, hiding and reading a book. <laughs> so literacy has been my passion so that all have the right to read and have the right to literacy for a long time. <laughs> that is awesome. I first became aware of your work through the free resources that you've provided. What can you tell us about these different resources? Well, uh, as I said, uh, it is my passion. I'm pretty much obsessed. (laughs) And so I'm a huge advocate, uh, as we are at Patton as well, that uh, there be no barrier to the science of reading that things be free. And so on social media, and really social media is a place where many teachers are going to learn about the science of reading. And so you know, we go where the teachers are. Uh, And so I have been sharing free resources uh, that are aligned with the science of reading for quite a while. And what was happening is people were saying, oh, you posted this like a month ago. And (laughs) I was keeping spreadsheets. I thought this is a little crazy, uh, kind of keep track of all. And so I have curated these resources on Wakelets, which are just tools for curating the way I use them, at least curating resources around big ideas and topics around the science of reading. 
They're extremely vetted. <laughs> Everything on there really aligns with the science of reading. Again, the goal is to have free access to this knowledge and kind of have it in a convenient spot. So I have many of them. And so I eventually created almost like a comprehensive wakelet of wakelets. So they're all in one spot. But I've been surprised, honestly, how much they're used. And I'm happy for that because uh, it's making a difference, hopefully, for teachers and for kids. And that's always been the goal is to help wherever I can and to offer these resources to teachers freely. And that's honestly how I uh, became familiar with your work was through these resources, because when I first started learning about this, someone said, have you checked out Pam Kastner? I'm like, no. And when I started looking through them, I'm like, my goodness gracious, she knows so much. And I really love the fact that you said vetted, because I think that that is one thing that we have to be careful of is to really know that the things that we're looking at and learning from are the right things. I would agree with you there. We've been fortunate recently, Emily Hanford's podcast, she really elevated the conversation around the science of reading, which has been happening with educators. And of course, Louisa Motes, you know, her first paper, I think was in 1995. This has been a topic of conversation for many decades, but maybe really so much within our own community. But Emily Hanford's podcast really elevated the conversation beyond our community, into the general public, into legislatures across the world. Therefore, sometimes what happens is a term can be used ubiquitously and doesn't take on the meaning of its original definition. And so that's also one reason why the Reading League has been working on this defining movement to define the science of reading. But also for me, I wanted to make sure that the resources that I shared with teachers were very vetted and they could always count on them being aligned with the science of reading because everything pretty much right now, not everything, but many things are being stamped with the science of reading. And when you look closely at them, you do not see the tenets and principles that underlie the science of reading. And so we have to be aware of even free things <laughs> that they really be aligned with what's going to be best for informing our teaching and also ensuring that students can read. And I know that that's been a big objective of the Reading League is to put out these high quality materials so that people do understand that. So I think that is one of the great things about the Reading League is that you can count on them for reliable sources. I agree. I would say the same as for a patent as well. We're, we yes. have been aligned with the science of reading for uh, since the beginning. Um, it, it's, it's embedded in our mission to be aligned with direct, explicit, systematic instruction and the evidence base. So very nice partnership. Uh, Patton is a mission partner of the Reading League Pennsylvania as well. What a great way to use your passion. I'm very fortunate. I say that all the time. So uh, as teachers, we love resources and kind of to your point, there's a lot out there. It can be really overwhelming to know where to start. Any thoughts on how best for people to start this journey or advice for those people who've already started? Um, I think it's a lifelong journey. It's interesting. Actually, my Twitter handle is, is live to learn. I always feel that as teachers, um, if we're going to serve as teachers, we always have to continue learning. So I, it's a, a journey, I think, that never ends. But it's a path that we get on and uh, we just can keep continuing. 
And I think that's an important thing to share because um, it can feel overwhelming. And I'll just speak for myself personally. I didn't learn the science of reading. My higher ed in any of my certifications that I have, not letters, but in my other certifications, I did not learn the science of reading. I learned the science of reading through letters. Thank you, Louisa Motes and Carol Tolman and Patton. But I think you have to begin small. I think if you try to take it all on at once, it can feel overwhelming. And I think every teacher, and I'll again speak for myself, you have areas where you think, gosh, I'm doing this and it's not having the results I want for kids. And I think that's a good place to start. An area where you personally want to improve your practice and then you just really hone in on that area and say, well, I need to learn more and then I need to change my behavior, right? Uh, My instructional practice related to that. And then oftentimes what we see, of course, is when we change our instructional behaviors that are more in line with the science, we have better outcomes for kids. And that is very motivating as a teacher. I mean, we always want what's best for our students. And so when we try an initial practice and we have good outcomes for kids, then we're spurred on, I think, to try something additionally. So, of course, the Reading League offers lots of free resources. You know, Patton does letters training. There's so many avenues now into the science of reading that are really evidence-based. You do have to be very aware, but there are so many avenues. And one of the silver linings, I think, from the pandemic, although they're not many, but one of them is that our community, I believe, has been extremely generous in sharing knowledge around the science of reading. You will find many, many webinars from very reputable presenters or organizations that are free. So I think in some ways the, the curtain has been removed around the science of reading because so much is so generously offered at no cost so that you can continue to learn. So I think just start where you have a question about your practice and then explore more, learn more, change your practice. Because if we just learn something but don't change our practice in relation to it, it doesn't change anything for kids. It's the beginning of the path. Knowledge is the beginning. Practice is the next step. And then when, you know, that's going well, try something new. Otherwise, I think feel overwhelming. <laughs> so I think- just start. The, uh, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. <laughs> Oh, that's exactly right. So that's a great segue to what I wanted to talk to you next, which was about this bridge to practice. And you've been very focused on on bridging that gap. What are the things that you've learned about how best to do this? I think in terms of bridging practice, I think, again, I go back to teaching and myself as a teacher. Teaching is a very personal thing. And so I think that one of the most important things is we build trust and relationships with the people that have the honor of you know, engaging in professional learning with. Um, we learn from people that we trust. And so I think one of the most important things is to begin with kindness and begin with trust and then incrementally have a, you know, just like we do with students, we have a very specific scope and sequence from least complex to most complex, right? And so same with, you know, teachers, we begin with foundational knowledge. That's very important that builds on everything else. So for example, you know, the theoretical frameworks, uh, we think about the simple view of reading, Scarborough's reading rope, the four-part processor, Aries phases of word reading, because we have to latch onto frameworks that have long-term evidence in the field. And then, okay, so now that we have this knowledge, what does that knowledge look like in practice? And so I, I think that also too, oftentimes behavior precedes belief. And this is what I mean. (laughs) When we help teachers engage in new instructional behaviors that result in effective outcomes for kids, then there's more belief that this system, this knowledge base works. And so I think while we're building knowledge, we must simultaneously be building practice because we know what, what works already. And we've known it for a long time. 
It's just that, and I'll speak again for myself, <laughs> it wasn't told to me. <laughs> Certainly, you know, I wanted to know it before I did know it. So we need to engage in practices simultaneously to the knowledge so that we can see that as we're engaged in these practices that are based on these theoretical frameworks, we have better outcomes for kids. It just spurs us on because teaching, you know, as wonderful as it is, you know, it's t- intensive. <laughs> so we want to see that our efforts are resulting in better outcomes for kids. And they do. And I've seen it over and over and over again. When we're engaged in direct, explicit, systematic instruction, things are better. We have better outcomes for kids and for all kids. Very completely. <laughs> and I love the quote about behavior precedes belief, because sometimes we think that we've got to convince people of what they're doing before they begin. And sometimes you're right. Uh, it's actually doing it and seeing it works that makes people believers. Learned that when we started implementing um, the Alabama Reading Initiative. It's counterintuitive, but it works. <laughs> I've seen it over and over again. And the other thing I think that I want to bring up here is, and it's related to probably the next question that we're going to, but how essential leadership is to equitable outcomes for all students. Because if we don't have a system, MTSS, or a system that's supporting all students with leadership, removing barriers that teachers cannot, oftentimes what we will find is we have, I don't know who coined the term, but these islands of excellence, where we will have these teachers who somehow, either through Facebook or the Reading League or Patton, let's hope, or, you know, any of the areas, they start to find out about the science of reading, or maybe they are fortunate to be in a uh, university program that's aligned with the science of reading. They begin to change their practice, but that practice is not system-wide. And so it's not very fortunate for a child if they have to win like that te- the teacher lottery to get into that teacher's classroom, right? And so if we want equitable outcomes for all children, we really have to have sustained leadership who is learning and engaging side by side with teachers and supporting them. If we want better outcomes for uh, students, we have to support our teachers as they traverse this new knowledge and new practice. And so that's a lesson I continue to learn over and over again in terms of systems, how important leadership is to equitable outcomes for kids. Teachers, of course, are the most important factor in schools that impacts student learning. But second to that is definitely leadership. And as a former elementary school principal, I took a lot of pride personally in sitting side by side with teachers learning because I was a secondary trained person. And so I had to learn everything just from the ground up, but it enabled me to support them better if I was learning the same thing that they were. I think they really respect two leaders that learn with them. We as leaders can walk the walk as well as talk the talk. So I, I think that's just so important that they see that we're in this together. As again, I know that, but I find that again and again and again with the work that we do at Patton. Well, it probably can't be reinforced enough because as usual, we have cycles of new people coming on. And so it is important for our leaders to be learning alongside and supporting our teachers in this process. One of the things that you've led in Pennsylvania is a dyslexia pilot program. What does this look like and what has been learned in this process? Well, we're in the seventh year of our pilot project, pilot program. It initially was launched with Act 69 in Pennsylvania in 2014 with Governor Corbett that established the dyslexia pilot. It was the dyslexia pilot early literacy screening intervention pilot program. We always say we want to focus on that early literacy intervention. The goal always has been with the pilot, the extension, and then the expansion to intervene 
early for students who appear to be at risk for reading failure. We know that the sooner we intervene, easier, of course, it is to close the gap. That gap just gets wider and wider and wider. So that's the overarching goal always was with the pilot was to intervene when students appeared to be at risk, whether they were dyslexic or not, because we know that this continuum, right, is broad. And so we want to intervene as soon as possible. So we work very, very closely. An initial pilot was three years, and we work with eight school districts across the state as pilot programs. They range from suburban to urban to rural, smaller to larger school districts. And of course, if you think about it in an MTSS framework, we need to be working on the system. So the core teachers, the classroom teachers were trained in letters and then modules as the years uh, continued from patent that were grounded in the science of reading around what you would think, of course, of the big five, right? And so where students spend most of their time is in the classroom with the classroom teacher. And so the knowledge that classroom teachers and intervention and specialists have to have it needs to be a common language and common knowledge and common practice. So that was a big pillar of the dyslexia pilot program was to build this knowledge of core classroom teachers. That was the main responsibility for Patton. And we were embedded in the school districts for three years. I lived pretty much in that school district, which was wonderful. And then for those students who were determined to be at risk, then they were provided with intensive interventions based on, you know, data and diagnostics. So tier two might look like an Orton-Gillingham-based intervention, Wilson, Sande, Barton, Project Read, right? So But for those who are most at risk, the interventions were trained by dyslexia centers and became supervisors within that three years so they could continue once the pilot program ended. So very intensive supports for those students who were highly at risk and a great deal of training and expertise for the interventionist in the district. And of course, working with the administrators, the building administrators and the central administrators to build a system of support. And so it was an amazing experience to be in the school districts for those three years and to see the change uh, and the, the outcomes for students. So after the initial pilot, the legislator decided to add an additional two years just to collect data to see how these students were doing on state assessments. And then two years ago now, a little over two years ago, and we have a new Bureau of Special Education Director, uh, Carol Clancy, very committed to um, supporting students who may be at risk for early reading failure and decided to expand that initial pilot from eight school districts to 28. So it's a pretty big (laughs) expansion. The unfortunate thing, of course, is that during that expansion, COVID hit. So it it did adjust a bit, like everybody in the world, how we had to respond and work with our school districts. But we still saw some nice outcomes for students because they had this long-term kind of embedded coaching and support from a state technical assistance network. And also, of course, in Pennsylvania, we're very fortunate to have a state system of support that sometimes when I'm out in different parts of the country, the MD, which I, you know, where we have our patents in Harrisburg, Philadelphia area, and Pittsburgh, all funded by IDEA. But we work in partnership with 29 intermediate units who have also IDEA-funded TAC, who work in partnership with us at the local level as well. And also, patent, as I said, has been long-term commitment to the science of reading. We have the most letters trainers in the country. And they were all trained and certified through patent. And then we then turn that training around at no cost to local school districts. So we have a nice system of support. I think like any state, states don't, I guess, like brag about themselves. They think more about what more can we do. (laughs) 
right? But I am proud of what we've accomplished. But I think, you know, we always then say, here's where we are. But, you know, there's always more to do. If there's one child who cannot read in Pennsylvania, it's one too many. Or anywhere in the world, actually. But certainly with the responsibilities that I have in Pennsylvania, if there's one, that's too many. I agree. And it's easy sometimes when we have this big global view to remember that it comes down to that individual child and Mm -hmm. the trajectory of their life. So I love that you bring it down to that level. Something that the Pennsylvania Reading League has started is the Pennsylvania Proud Showcase. What is this (laughs) and what do you think will be accomplished by it? Well, the Pennsylvania Proud Showcase is the way to kind of highlight these school districts or organizations that are really doing amazing things around the science of reading and having huge impact on teacher knowledge and practice and student outcomes. Sometimes they're the best kept secret. Oftentimes when I say I work at Patton, they go, what's Patton? (laughs) You know, or the Reading League, you know, you need to, you know, spread the spread the word. Right. And so we're highlighting school districts and organizations in Pennsylvania that are really making a difference. And we're trying to, you know, we're all working. We don't want to work in silos. We want to work collaboratively together. So how can we work collaborative together? First of all, we need to know about each other, (laughs) right? And certain organizations or schools may be doing something that another, you know, entity in the state would want to do or connect. And how did you do that? And so we just, we had our first one a couple of weeks ago on September 15th, we highlighted the Capital Area Intermediate Unit Reading Network. They're doing amazing things in the Capital Area with the school districts around them, providing professional learning to reading specialists and administrators and scaling the science of reading. And districts are, you know, learning from each other. But it was just so wonderful to watch the first one because, of course, we open them up to anybody. Of course, we want Pennsylvania educators to attend. That's our main goal. But we had a lot of people... And other parts of the state saying, oh, can I email you? Could you tell me about that? How did you do that? Sending up, you could see the chat box, sending emails to collaborate with each other. That is exactly what we want. You know, this work is very rewarding, but also hard. So it's good to know that there are other people that are on this path. They might be a little bit further than you and you can learn from them, right? What what went well, how, what are some pitfalls to avoid? It's good when we can partner together. We all have the same goal. So how can we do that together? So I'm, I'm very excited about it. The first one was we were kind of pinching ourselves a little bit because we knew it would be good. Amy Healy is an amazing leader of that network. But the cross-collaboration, and there were administrators who joined, who talked about the journey. There were reading specialists, there were teachers, there were families. So it's exactly what we, we want. So we're very excited about that. You know, we always have to remember that when we're looking at data outcomes, the, just as I said before, those are children. So in some cases, actually, I remember meeting with an assistant superintendent once and, you know, looking at the numbers. And I asked him to um, think about those numbers as faces of children, because that's what those numbers are. They're not a number. <laughs> that's a child. And it was funny because the principal in that school district and he emailed me the next day and said he couldn't sleep all night because he kept thinking, oh, it's not just a number. That's just not a percentage. That is a child. And so, of course, data is essential to informing our instruction, but we can never forget what that data represents. When we first started doing data walls and having individual children's names where They were in the different tiers, and then we were seeing whether we were moving them. It really brought a different level of accountability because I knew what would happen if we failed that child. Yeah, one one district that I work with, 
took this to like another level. They had a very confidential area. So as kids are moving and when they would do their screenings, they had photos of the, they would move them and see how they went. That was a very confidential area. No one was seeing it but the teachers, but it made a big impact uh, because they were looking (laughs) at the faces of the children, seeing how they, because we all know the consequences of not being able to read. My oldest granddaughter is dyslexic and uh, and she's 11. And let me tell you, uh, the social and emotional impact of, you know, I think we often think of dyslexia and we think about these academic concerns. And of course we have to address those, but the emotional impact of being a child who, who is not skilled at reading and yet every day has to walk through the classroom door surrounded by peers who find what she or he finds extremely difficult, so easy to do. I always say they're the most courageous people in the world. Adults could not do that. If they had to go to a job every day where they struggled and were unsuccessful and tried so hard when others around them were very successful, I think the majority of them would quit. They would find another job. They had the power to do that. But our students who have reading difficulties, they rely on the adults to make a difference for them. And so I always think they're, you know, I think of them as courageous people because they get up every morning and they go through that full door and keep trying. So the systems need to support them. I agree. And I love that story uh, about your granddaughter and really that other side of it, which is the social, emotional, and I will go back and say that area that we had kids' names was confidential too. So I don't yeah, want yeah. thinking sure, that. Sure, of course. You know, um, but I worked in a this community where I lived. And so I knew these kids at the ballpark. I knew their mamas. I knew their families. And so you're accountable to that child and their future and their family. And it really does bring that whole child emphasis into view that way. So important. Yes, yeah, they're whole human beings. <laughs> they are whole human beings. Yeah. So um, can you share any of the great things that you know that are going to be highlighted in the showcase um, with Science of Reading? Well, um, as I said, we have a number of school districts that are presenting. We really are trying to highlight school systems that are doing a wonderful job. We just have the Capital Area Intermediate Unit. And next month, we have a group from our state system of support, our intermediate units, who are working in collaboration with Patton with school districts who are implementing enhanced core reading instruction. So if you think about letters as the what and the why, ECRI is the how. It's pedagogy. It's the pedagogy you wish you would have learned in college, but didn't. And so direct, explicit, systematic opportunities to respond, error correction. And our patent MTSS team has been supporting school districts implementing ECRI routines, instructional routines that focus on foundational skills, both in word recognition and language comprehension, and seeing enormous outcomes for students. And teachers are just on fire for how this pedagogy, how this instruction is impacting student learning. And so in partnership with our intermediate units who support them locally and uh, Patton, the school districts are coming to talk about their journey as they implemented ECRI instructional routines. And it's going to be powerful because I've seen the data (laughs) and it's just, it's phenomenal. And even during a pandemic, right? One classroom in particular, a first grade teacher when I was on site ran up to show me her growth data. And what was so empowering about that growth data was this story that she told. There was a, and you could see in the data as well, a student who came in, you know, well above benchmark, very gifted, you know, parents kind of concerned that we were doing these explicit routines in classrooms. And then of course, students coming in, this is a school that had a high English learner population, student coming in with well below benchmark. 
So when you looked at her data, the student who was gifted or, you know, very knowledgeable was completely blue, well above growth. She was growing well above typical growth. And the student who was at risk was also growing well above typical growth. But this student closed the gap in one year and became a proficient reader. And we know how important first grade is. If a first grader does not learn to read, only one in eight will read as their typical peers. If we don't intervene, right, we must intervene. So that student closed the gap in one year and the other student was not harmed in any way. So it always takes me back to that quote from Snowling and Hume that effective, explicit, systematic instruction harms none, benefits all. And I can show you that in the data in Pennsylvania, not just in this classroom and lots of classrooms, right? And so I think sometimes like that's a proof's in the pudding, <laughs> right? Uh, and this was in a, during a pandemic, you know, that teacher changed the life of that child who was at risk, truly, but it didn't harm the, the student who was likely perhaps gifted or very, very skilled. They were both growing well above typical growth on a normed sample. So not just some, you know, light statistics, some really strong statistics. So I'm very excited for them to share their journey. They've been sharing it at the Patent Literacy Symposium and other places. So that's what's coming up in PA Proud Showcase. But Pennsylvania 2 Patent has a symposium every two years. Our last symposium did have to shift to virtual and we are continuing that this next summer just due to the uncertainty. But we had 3,000 folks attend. Jack Fletcher was a keynote speaker, Louisa Motes. Emily Hanford, Anita Archer, some of the most well-regarded and well-respected researchers and practitioners in the world. And then we curate all those and that way, you know, that learning can continue. So that symposium will happen June 14th to 16th, 2022. Again, again, it will be absolutely free. And we have an amazing roster of researchers and practitioners, the people doing it every day, who will be sharing best practice. We also have some amazing organizations like the Capital Area Intermediate Unit, the Reading Network there, the Lehigh Valley Reads, have Read by Fourth in the Philadelphia area. We have some really wonderful organizations that are making a big difference. And we're now meeting <laughs> to work together so that we can accomplish things together and not kind of repeat right? So that we can reduce the load for us too. So there's lots of really good things happening in Pennsylvania. There's always more that we need to do and will do, but I'm proud of our state uh, and everything that the educators and organizations are doing to make a difference. That's a lot to be proud of. I can't wait. I started learning about ECRI and I want to learn more. And so I encourage our listeners to uh, follow along. And can they watch the showcase as well? Of course they can. Yes. Everything is open and free. And of course, you know, the Reading League Journal, the last journal article was heavily focused on ECRI Hank Fine. And uh, there was a wonderful article in there about ECRI as well. So the Reading League too has been national as well as the one in Pennsylvania really supporting best practices. But you know, check out that journal too. There's some amazing articles to read in the Reading League Journal. I love it. Pam, thank you so much uh, for being with me today. I appreciate so much what you're doing for the state of Pennsylvania and teachers and families across this country. My honor. It really is. I feel so blessed to be a part of making a difference. So thank you so much for letting me join you. And you are making a difference. Join us again for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast.